everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero Podcast. I'm Spectre, with me is Z. Today we have an interesting GitLab report, a power, uh, the PowerDur macOS phone, um, stealing Google Drive OAuth tokens from Dropbox, and more. Quick reminder that next week will be the last week of doing the podcast for a few months. Uh, we will be returning after the summer break. Um, don't have a date set yet exactly for that, but we'll have one tomorrow uh, and next week for you guys. Um, and we'll also send out notifications about that as well. Um, also a reminder that we're going to be covering two more talks from offensive con and a watch party stream this Friday at 6 PM Eastern four or uh, 3 PM Pacific on YouTube. Um, for those who missed the one we did last week, the VOD is already up on YouTube. It went up basically as soon as the stream was done. That is one of the nice things about streaming on YouTube. Um, last week we covered Counter-Strike Global Offsets, which was a talk about exploiting Source Engine. Um, and we also covered a Project Zero talk um, talking about data-only sandbox escapes, which was a little mind-melting, but also a little inspiring. Um, it was pretty much talking about like the Chrome renderer um, and and escaping that with, with data-only well, data only in quotes attacks because you're dealing with JavaScript. But yeah, um, few really cool talks. And the ones that we'll be covering this week, uh, this Friday, will be Attacking JavaScript Engines in 2022 um, by Samuel Gross and Amy. And we'll also be covering Mark Dowd's talk on how do you actually find bugs, which we referenced a little bit before um, a couple episodes ago when we had a bit of a discussion around it. Um, but yeah, I think that'll... We didn't watch the talk all the way through and just kind of talked about um, different points through it in that discussion. So yeah, we still want to cover it on the watch party stream. But yeah, like I said, that's all going to be on YouTube, not on Twitch. Um, just because, you know, we want to, uh, avoid any potential, you know, legal issues there. Um, and yeah, so that'll be on YouTube and that's at 6 PM Eastern 3 PM Pacific on Friday. All right. So we'll get into some of our topics here. Um, first one is a news topic and it's from the department of justice and their new, uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act policy um, that was put out. And Z, this is a topic that you've liked to talk about before, so I'll, I'll let you take the lead on this one. Yeah, this is a little bit of my own little soapbox here, I guess. Um, DOJ on Thursday put out a new policy regarding uh, what cases they would charge under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. If you've listened to the podcast on the past times I've talked about CFA. I'm not a fan of the law. Um, it's just really vaguely written and it's really easy to kind of enter into this sort of selective enforcement where um you know basically just on the whims of the prosecutor or maybe some company pushing the prosecutor to actually make a charge people will get charged or not charged and like it's not clear the law where the line should be it's really vague i think last time we talked about was after a supreme court um it was either after the opinion or the actual ruling um regarding a police officer basically exceeding or potentially exceeding access where he was given access to a system and then was running other queries to search for people uh for profit or letting people pay him for it uh i i don't think that was like publicly offering it like anybody could pay him but still taking money and kind of just running extra searches oh and so they were pursuing that under cfaa and it seems like this policy is kind of in response to the Supreme Court ruling out of that, where they're basically walking back how often they'll use uh, the CFA. Uh, they do also call out right at the top here, um, probably inspired because of the whole incident out of Missouri with a journalist basically accessing HTML source and 
the governor trying to push for charges. Um, although, in fairness, the prosecutor did not, but they do call out here that uh, this policy for the first time directs that good faith security research should not be charged. The fact that this hasn't been said sooner, it, like, I, I'm happy that they're doing this and making this change. But the chilling effect of the CFA being enforced against researchers has already happened. That happened 15, 20 years ago. So the fact that they're doing it now, like, great, they're too late. Um, it, it has fundamentally changed how research gets approached, and it is going to take quite a while for this new policy to actually, for any hope of it kind of rewarming it all. Um, so, oh no, it feels like a little bit too little, too late. Um, they call out some specific cases where they're going to uh, enforce this policy as some of the crazier cases where CFA could have been used, like having uh, embellished online profile, like fictional accounts using fake information could have been considered uh, violations of CFAA because they'd violate terms of service, uh, which is something that the Supreme Court did strike down or strike against. Um, that said, this is also purely a policy. New administration, and they can change the policy. Um, obviously, there are ways um, prosecutors can get exceptions to it also, so it feels to me like they need to change the law, not just the policy of the law. Changing the policy is really just creating more of a selective enforcement environment where, you know, they can still enforce it if they want to, if they have the right person and don't have other crimes to charge them with, they can find some vague way to apply CFA. So as much as I'm happy about it, I also think we still need to push for the law itself to be changed here. And that's the end of my rant or soapbox. You kind of commented at the top that uh, part of your problem with the CFAA was like how vague and nonspecific it is. Um, I feel like that kind of carries forward too in the policy that they put out. Um, so I did kind of glance over the policy they put out. It is a lot of legalese and whatnot, but um, there was one quote towards the um, towards the end where they're saying uh, they said security research not conducted in good faith, for example, for the purpose of discovering security holes and devices machines or services in order to extort the owners of such devices um, might be called research, but not in good faith. Um, CSIPs can consult with prosecutors about specific applications of this factor. So like there seems to be, and this is something the EFF comments on too. Um, this concept of good faith is not really super well defined um, because like the EFF points out a case here, like, what if you have alternative motivations when you're doing security research? Like, say you responsibly disclose the vulnerability, but then you also talk about it at a conference, or, uh, you know, you you get paid for it through, like, maybe ZDI or something like that. Like, you can have, like, alternative motivations, and does that then take you out of the good faith category? It doesn't really seem super clear. Um, so it still kind of seems to have that same problem where it's relying on this vague definition of whether or not you fit this good faith classification or not. So, yeah, I mean, it seems a little bit flimsy just at, uh, you know, from my understanding of it. Um, but yeah, like I wasn't even really thinking about what you brought up until you said it with like the fact that this is a policy, like it's not like set in stone or anything like kind of like the law is where it's like a brick wall once it's set in there it's really hard to change um 
So yeah, I was initially maybe a little bit more hopeful than I guess you were, um, because yeah, I didn't really think about the policy aspect too much. But yeah, I mean, it, it's some good steps, but it it feels a little bit too flimsy personally. Um, so I'm curious how much this is really going to change. Um, yeah, I can't imagine it's going to change a lot. I mean, I guess one of the other things that I can absolutely imagine happening is that you know they call out specifically researchers you know acting in good faith and trying to or not sorry not necessarily acting in good faith and trying to extort the owners of the software and we've talked a lot before about you know if you're if you ask about a bounty is that going to be considered extortion um if you don't if you say like hey do you have a bounty program suddenly you're extorting them i could absolutely see a prosecutor framing it that way because they've done uh bad takes around the framing before uh so like good faith is yeah i mean it's not really a well-defined term in general the policy isn't law so i'm not going to expect them to have like the same level of detail as one might expect out of the law. And even with laws, a lot of it still ends up coming down to letting the courts actually interpret it. So there are a lot of questions being left, and CFA just hasn't really been pushed all that far in terms of having, like, any rulings reach the Supreme Court. Uh, like, the Van Bruen case was, I think, the first time the Supreme Court heard anything about the CFAA. Uh, but... But yeah, I mean, I still have concerns. It's great that they're taking at least some apparent steps to protect researchers, but too little, too late, in my opinion. And I will quickly add, um, I've kind of said this before when we've covered these U.S. law type uh, topics, but um, part of the reason we're covering it on the podcast is, yes, this is like the U.S. Department of Justice. This is U.S. law, um, though. A lot of countries kind of look to the U.S. for shaping their own laws, so it does have like kind of a big impact, even though it is technically only the U.S. Um, that this applies to. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, good to shout that out and at least point that out. I mean, we're both Canadians talking about U.S. law because U.S. law has a pretty significant impact. Also, when you consider the fact that um, a lot of internet or tech companies are based in the U.S. They might have servers elsewhere, but also there's a good chance you're going to be passing through U.S. servers and thus U.S. Uh, jurisdiction. Yeah. All right, so uh, we'll get into some of our exploit topics now. Uh, so we have another Microsoft post on a macOS vulnerability. Uh, a few months ago, we covered Shrootless, and now we have PowerDur. So we're, we're continuing the name Vuln train. Um, this is a uh, transparency, consent, and control, or TCC bypass. Um, TCC is yet another Apple subsystem that's uh, a little bit vague in its naming, but Microsoft details it a bit here. Um, basically, it's the backbone for protecting access to privacy settings and iCloud account and stuff like that. Um, and it's protected by a policy that was introduced that would restrict access to TCC to apps that have full disk encryption. That way, it can't easily be subverted by any application. Um, the way that TCC works is it tracks consent history for app requests, basically. So if you've previously given consent for an app to access some particular functionality or data, that'll be stored in the TCC database. 
and it can skip prompting for user authentication or whatever next time so that it's not so annoying. Um, if there isn't a record present, though, it'll prompt for authorization. Um, there's two databases used for that. Um, there's the user database for like the user profile and a global one for the system. Um, and this is all managed by the TCC daemon or TCCD. Um, so anyway, Microsoft look at, looked at some of the previous attacks on uh, the TCC database and bypassing it. Um, one in particular that caught their attention was the environment variable poisoning, uh, which was a bug where TCCD would basically use the home environment variable to build up the path to figure out where the TCC database was. Um, and that kind of left the weak point because the environment can be can, like attacked by the attacker. So an attacker could just change the home environment variable to some arbitrary path they control and get an, an arbitrary database they control loaded. Um, so that was kind of a silly bug. Um, the way Apple fixed that was to stop evaluating the home environment variable and instead use this get PWUID function um, to get the, the working directory field or the PWDIR field, which has the user's home directory. Um, and Microsoft points out that while that fix works and in a way, because it fixes the ability to manipulate the environment variable for an easy bypass, the core issue still remains, being the fact that it relies on the user's home directory at all. Um, you know, the user could end up changing their home directory. Um, so that's kind of what they explore here is the different vectors to do that. Um, their first POC of this was using the directory services utility to change the home directory to a temporary one. Um, that worked though it did require root access and it required um, you had like it had to be invoked with an app with the TCC policy, um, which I think was DS export and DS import in this case. Um, and yeah, like you still need root, though I think this is still technically a privesque because you're able to get a fake data uh, database loaded without full disk access. Um, so I think even if you have root, TCC is still meant to like act as a, as a security boundary. Um, that technique ended up getting killed due to Apple changes on DS import. Um, and so they came up with a second POC, which was the config daemon um, for system configuration. It turned out that daemon also had the TCC entitlement to allow the home directory to be changed. Um, and you could get arbitrary code loaded using the bundle option. So um, that one was even more powerful than the first POC they tried. But yeah, I mean, the main problem with like their... Um, the vulnerability here is just the fact that they they rely on the home directory for using the user database, and that could be changed um, by an attacker potentially. So, yeah, I mean it's a bit of an interesting logic bug, um, though the impact is is quite neutered there. Where you know at least the vectors they showed here would require root. There might be some other ones that don't. Um, I'm not totally sure. Um, you'd have to like play around and, and do a lot of searching. I would, I would think that Microsoft probably would have found them if they were easy, uh, or if there was like a blatantly obvious one. But yeah, um, at least you know from the, the techniques they showed in this post, it requires root. But yeah, I think that's still bypassing a security boundary, so it's it's still like worthy of calling out. Yeah, and I mean modifying the home directory and building off of that is. Just a good kind of trick to be aware of in general when looking at desktop applications um, and looking for any sort of privesque. Um, plenty of applications will do that. They'll store uh, some user-specific data in like a dot folder underneath the home directory or something, which you might be able to manipulate by controlling home. So like I also think just that very first trick is worth um, 
being aware of if you're going to be doing any sort of bug hunting against those desktop services or even just normal desktop applications. Maybe to abuse that, depending on the scenario. But yeah, I mean, needing root definitely neuters it a bit. Uh, technically, it's a privesque, but not by much, really. Um, it's a high ask. Yeah. Yeah, if you're already there, there are probably other routes too, but know defense and death i mean might as well fix one if you can but i mean i get the reasoning beyond beyond just leaving it at that and yeah if there were any obvious non-roof routes i would have expected them to call them out here so i mean yeah i i can't think of anything um usually you know changing home directory is not going to be something that the user themselves gets control of so so yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. still in- interesting vulnerabilities, and I always kind of like covering some of these uh, vulns that aren't just our standard web app issues, because I think a lot of people maybe avoid testing like the more desktop services because you know, they don't know what type of vulnerabilities to be looking for, so at least a little bit of exposure. Yeah. All right, so we had some Hacker One reports in the show today. Um... Our first hacker one report is one to GitLab, and it's a sort of XSS bug in Jupyter Notebooks, um, though it's a little bit interesting, which we'll, we'll get into there. Um, it's based on GitLab's use of Rails UGS, or unobtrusive JavaScript, um, specifically the fact that arbitrary data parameters outside of UJS's known attributes, like data URL and data method, um, won't get stripped out by DOM Purify. Um, they will be sanitized, but they won't be stripped. Um, and that kind of leads to an issue due to um, how GitLab has their, their pages set up here. Um, and it ultimately leads to like a clickjacking type attack to get a victim to send an arbitrary post request. Um, what they focus on for attacking this here is this dismiss event handler that gets called uh, and attached to elements with the close button class. Um, and this dismiss event handler will decide where to post the user um, using the dismiss endpoint. And the problem there is that can be set with the data dismiss endpoint attribute. And because this attribute can be attacker controlled and it's not being stripped out by DOM Purify, all they have to do is get the user to click a close button element and they can post the user wherever they want, um, which they do by using an output in Jupyter Notebook that'll create a button that spans the entire page with a close button class. Um, they pock how this could be used in a few different ways in the, the initial report. Um, the first was a bit harmless with just adding a to-do on an issue in one of the researchers' projects. Um, the other was a payload that demonstrated um, abusing the GitLab API to use GitLab's user creation to add an attacker as an admin user. Um, another thing that was demonstrated was adding an SSH key to any user through the API as well. So really, there's a lot of avenues that could potentially go there. Um, you're basically abusing the API and doing clickjacking to do anything that the admin user could do. Um, but yeah, I mean, kind of an interesting report because it is somewhat like an XSS type issue, but like the H- the what's being passed in is being sanitized by Dom Purify. It's just not enough um, because the attacker just needs to be able to control some of those data attributes that are being used. Um, they don't need to like break out of it and, you know, go your more typical XSS route. So yeah, because this is, or does potentially have some high impact. Um, they awarded the $8,600 or 690 bounty. So yeah, pretty high bounty payout. Um, 
yeah, a bit of an interesting issue just in terms of like how it was exploited and uh and abusing like Dom purifies lack of stripping there. It's kind of a cool bug. Yeah, it's definitely a it's a nice little chain of I mean not even a chain, but just taking advantage of what normally wouldn't be a hugely significant issue. Just that ability to get things into the data attribute. Um, taking advantage of that, turning it into some that does have pretty significant security considerations. Um, so, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting on that front. Um, you do call it kind of like clickjacking. I get where you're coming from, although I will at least just mention, like, for it to actually be clickjacking, that would require kind of framing the page and posing this outside, whereas it's more just the... Uh, actually a little bit of a XSS technique where if you can't just run arbitrary code but you can get it say on an on-click event you create like a button that takes the whole page they can't see as long as they interact with the page they'll get your JavaScript running. Kind of in that vein I totally see where you're coming from with calling it kind of like clickjacking because with clickjacking you're often trying to create like a big target area somebody can click on and kind of doing some similar tricks but Right, at least call out. It's not quite like jacking in this case. It's more of an abuse, almost like a HTML injection. Um, although, yeah, I mean, I guess they even call it here uh, as HTML injection. Uh, yeah. still a cool issue. Yeah, it's just kind of borrowing the the, the similar techniques to like click jacking. So yeah. All right. Um, so our next hacker one report was a bit of a funny issue that was reported to Glovo, um, which is like a delivery platform where you can order things and have them delivered. Uh, kind of functions like a marketplace and allows, kind of deals with like the payments and you know totaling up um, the order. So and that's where this bug comes into play. Um, the bug here is an int overflow in the quantity parameter of the post request for the order, uh, which can affect the total price of the order. Um, so unfortunately the summary doesn't really do a super good job of covering what the issue is they they have like all of these sentences and paragraphs covering what an integer overflow is um but then they don't really talk about what the problem is you can you can kind of figure it out though through the screenshots um there's lots of screenshots to go through here um screenshot 167 kind of demonstrates it pretty well um so basically what they do um they intercept the post request of the order um and then they edit the, or they order two different types of products for delivery, and they change the quantities to like uh, twenty two nine 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 two two and two four nine 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 nine, which, when that gets used to calculate the price, ends up overflowing, um, and it would ask for a total of like ten bam when it should be like obviously a lot more than that. Um, so yeah, I mean, kind of a funny issue. Uh, I don't really know how well this would work out in practice because I feel like if you were like a vendor or something and you saw somebody ordering that many, <laughs> like a quantity that high of an item, you would probably be a little bit suspicious and you would well, probably look at the order total and see, oh, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, and kind um, of the ability to fulfill such an order, which is kind of the interesting thing. So they did actually, um, one of the pictures here is like the guy with the delivery person, something got delivered. So what I really find lacking in this report is they don't show what was delivered because this order is like five point uh yeah five point seven five million gallons of hair conditioner. 
I don't think that guy delivered that much air conditioner in like It'd thirty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> like, and that's the other thing. This is like a thirty minute turnaround on the order. So, like, I could imagine some odd made system slipping through. But if he got more than what he paid for, huge issue. But it's not clear if he did or if it actually only sent him like one of each item or something. Like, it's a really funny issue to see here, but I wish he'd have been clear about what he actually got delivered and what he actually got out of it. Because it it feels like the fact that he didn't include that and the fact this is such an impossible order, he might not have received enough, or perhaps they only sent, um, like, what they had in stock and he got it for really cheap. Like, there's a lot of ways it could have played out that aren't indicated anywhere, which I find really strange that it's not mentioned anywhere. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, we can only be left to speculate, but yeah, I mostly just wanted to cover this because it is like a really funny bug and a really stupid bug. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's great. Like I could just imagine the, the poor delivery guy like actually needing to <laughs> deliver like just this insane amount of anything. Yeah, that would be a bad day. All right, so uh, we'll get into our next topic here, which is. Um, a post on stealing Google Drive OAuth tokens from Dropbox, which is inspired by a topic we covered a few months ago, actually, um, which was hacking Google Drive integrations. Z, I'll let you take this one. Yeah, we covered another post a little while back where it was, you know, hacking Google Drive integrations, and that was on our, I think, February 8th, or at least the week of February 8th. That's the number sticking in my head here that we covered. Um and the idea there was with the Google Drive API, I'll even pull up our old summary for it, um, effectively you would have, uh, when you'd make the request trying to get like what download URL for a file or whatever, you'd normally get this JSON response that has the download URL in it, but what you could do is if you could include in the URL the alt equals media, um, basically telling Google Drive to... Um, Grab the grab the actual file content, so alt equals media. You're going to display the media rather than the meta information that would normally come. Uh, if you had a uh, file on the Google Drive that was, um, sorry, I'm confusing myself a little bit, but um, if, if you had a file on the Google Drive that was JSON content and included its own download URL, you would get basically get an SSRF because the application thinks it's making a request for this meta information and then following the download URL to get the file, whereas you're actually controlling what URL it's going to try and download the file from. Uh, so Dropbox ended up patching this, or hello sign, um, patched this by blacklisting sensitive URLs. So basically preventing, not preventing the SSRF, but preventing it from being used for anything like the meta, metadata service or anything useful like that. Problem with that is, is of course, the SSRF still remains. Granted, it is a case of, um, of a file, or sorry, of an attacker kind of attacking themselves because it's going to be used, or one other detail about this that I neglected to mention is when it goes to download the file, it's going to include the Google Drive authorization header. It's going to send like, um, information about the integration or like what OAuth count is connected to, it's going to send that header with this request. Um, so it's basically the attacker attacking themselves because that authorization header is going to be uh, like for their integration. So what they did here on the second one, because they left the SSRF in after patching this, um, 
leaving the SSRF, just can't get metadata. They chained it with a CSERF. Effectively, the request to cause this SSRF wasn't uh, protected by any sort of CSERF protection. Therefore, they can get a victim to basically access their hello sign link. And that link would end up causing the request to happen with their victim's authorization header or authorization token. Uh, which would then basically let them leak it. So just another way of abusing that same issue. Which I am a little bit surprised that the patch did go kind of this route of just blocking it rather than blocking the core issue of having this SRF at all. <laughs> um, given that partial patch, like I'm not surprised somebody found a way around it. Yeah, um, just kind of cool to see a follow up to like that uh, that earlier research, you know, because I think they they call out like that caught their attention and they they started looking at that. Um, sorry, I just had to step away for a few minutes, so I might say something that you already covered. But um, yeah, I mean, like you were saying at the top, um, the VOD for when we covered this earlier report was mentioned on the uh, February 7th episode. So, yeah, you can go back and check that out if you're interested. Um, Timestamps are in the description. But, uh, yeah, bit of a cool chain. and um, It's a cool bug. Like, I mean, th this bug on a whole, I do think mm -hmm. we are going to see pop up a little bit more. Um, somebody calls it out, and then people start looking for it elsewhere. I can't imagine that Dropbox is the only place where you can get that alt media in there. And, like, having this, the core vulnerability, having that pop up elsewhere, I can easily see happen. Yeah. Um, with that said, that's basically all the exploit topics we have. I do have one uh, shout out that I want to mention before we uh, wrap up the show. Um, and it's a research post from Google security blog um, about Kubernetes and privileged pod escalations. Not really a ton in here. Um, it basically just documents some of the changes that Google has made um, and the improvements they made the GKE security, as well as some tips developers can apply to reduce the likelihood of privilege escalations. Um, this is kind of coming off the back of a presentation uh, at KubeCon where Palo Alto Networks um, demonstrated using trampoline pods, as they call them, or basically pods with elevated privileges to um, you know escalate and, and take things further, which we've seen um, in cloud quite a bit. Um, they state up front, like, these attacks are somewhat unlikely and had some major prerequisites, um, being that an, an attacker would have to compromise and break out of the container. Um, but yeah, they have some, like, suggestions for developers to follow, um, which is, like, using GKE Sandbox, um, using Autopilot, which deploys some default policies and, and stuff like that, um, and also some of the steps that Google are taking. So, like, they're adding an admission controller to Autopilot. Um, they're also, they also made a permission scanning tool that can like identify pods that are super privileged and they use that to assist in like their audits. Um, so yeah, like I said, nothing super technical there, but I wanted to bring it up because we've covered some container escapes before and talked about these types of issues. Um, and you know, these privileged pods or containers are a very useful privesque route, but they're also a necessary evil as they're, you know, they're needed to perform some of the actions um, that are happening um, in the setup. So yeah, this kind of explores that and some of the steps that are being taken. So, um, yeah, it might be interesting to some people out there who are, who are doing that kind of research, but yeah. Um, with that said, that's, uh, basically everything that we have for this week. Um, so yeah, we'll wrap up the show there. Thank you everyone for joining us. Links for our discord and Twitter and such can be found on our site or in the chat. 
Um, we always welcome people to the Discord. We have some cool discussions in there. Um, you can also find summaries and VODs for our previous episodes on our website and on, on the YouTube. Um, we'll be back for binary topics tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And once again, we'll also be live on YouTube on Friday night at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific for a watch party of a few more offensive con talks um, being uh, attacking JavaScript engines in 2022, uh, as well as um, how do you actually how do you actually find bugs talk? So, yeah, we'll hope to see you there. And uh, other than that, uh, take care.